Well, good morning. Welcome again, especially all of you that are visiting with us today. Um, yesterday was a good day for us. Many of you had a chance to do Mountain Day activities yesterday. Um, many of you also had the chance to come eat barbecue last night here and see what was some of the best barbecue you will ever eat disappear like locust had devoured it or something. Um, it was a great time yesterday, a good day, and I'm glad that you're back this morning. Well, yesterday was a great day for a lot of folks, um, but I think that we will admit also if we walk through life with our eyes open to what's around us and even in our own lives, there are days that are not great days. There are times that are not great times, and there are times when we question what God is up to in this world. Where, where is he? How is he acting? What's going on? I want to give you a couple of examples of some things that I have noticed and read about lately. Sarah is a 14-year-old girl who ran away from home two years ago. Uh, not long after running away, somebody that she thought was her friend forced her into prostitution. And she has been in that state for the last couple of years and recently found out now that she's HIV positive. She is living in this city in the United States that has the highest rate of child prostitution in America, and that's Atlanta, Georgia. Um, let me give you a couple more. In 1979, Christ, um, Christianity Today reported this week, that's the year 1979 is when China instituted their one-child-per-family policy. Um, the result of that has been... In less than my lifetime, they have aborted more than 300 million children. Y'all, that's almost the entire population of the United States of America. That's something we don't think about often, we don't hear very often. Where is God in that? Why is God not making that right? Where is the justice for all those little children? Let me give you one more. Malik is a 15-year-old boy who lives in extreme southwestern Pakistan. He lives in the province of Baluchistan, uh, up in the mountains. He is part of the western Baluch people, people of about 1.1 million, um, who have their own customs, their own language, their own uh, identity. They're very much cut off from the rest of the country. There is no gospel in their language. For Malik, everyone that he knows is a Muslim. There are no Christians among his people. There is no translation of scripture among his people. Where is God in that? Is God bringing glory to his name there? Is he pursuing those people? What's happening there? I think when we look at things like that, when we look at maybe some other things that happen in our own lives and the lives of those around us, we sometimes question, what's God up to? How is this apparent contradiction between what we see revealed in scripture and what we see in everyday life. Well, this morning I want us to address that from scripture. Um, I want us to look at the life and the writing of Habakkuk. Um, and he addresses this very clearly. This is an issue that he wrestles with on a very personal, um, very personal level. If you don't know where Habakkuk is, if you go to your New Testament, go to Matthew and flip back about five minor prophets, you'll find him. Um, many of you probably have never heard a sermon on Habakkuk. I would venture to guess. I don't know that uh, I've ever heard. I've heard someone comment on it, but I've never heard anyone really give a sermon on Habakkuk. 
But there's a lot of rich truth here for us to mine this morning. There's a lot for us to to see um, and to respond to this morning. So as you're finding Habakkuk, let me give you a little bit of background on him and his writing. Um, Habakkuk was written about 2,600 years ago. And Habakkuk lived in the southern kingdom of Judah. And in his time, he was faced with a great evil in the country. There was widespread corruption. The people had turned away from God. Um, the Assyrian Empire had been the dominant world force, and they had begun to they had persecuted and, and really exacted a lot of tribute uh, from Judah, and they had begun to, to wane in their power. Babylon is on the rise as a world power and is threatening the nation of Judah. And for Habakkuk, it seems like the whole world is out of control for him. And he struggles with this whole idea of he, he knows the revealed nature of God. He knows um, the pro, he knows the law. He knows the, the Torah. And yet he sees all this stuff going on around him that he can't reconcile. And he cries out to God um, to say, God, where are you? What are you doing in all of this? Um, Habakkuk was a contemporary of Jeremiah. He wrote somewhere around 609 to maybe 605 B.C. And like I said earlier, this is a, a time of major upheaval. Um, let me read for you just historically. Jeremiah wrote this maybe 15 to 20 years before Habakkuk's prophecy. This is from Jeremiah 5, describing what's going on in the nation. For wicked men are found among my people. They lurk like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap and they catch men. Like a cage full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper, and they do not defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord, and shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? So Jeremiah has declared the guilt of the people, and he has also declared that ultimately God is going to judge them for that. Um, Shortly after Jeremiah gives this prophecy in 622, Hilkiah, the high priest, finds the word of the Lord in the, in the temple. And he brings it to King Josiah. And Josiah reads it to the whole nation. And you can read about this in Second uh, Kings 22 and 23, where they read to the people. The people hear the word, many of them, for the first time because it had been abandoned for generations. And many of them turn back to the Lord. And there's a revival in the land. And yet, it doesn't last very long. Once Josiah dies, the people turn back. And this, this corruption, this widespread um, ignoring of God's decrees, of his commands, of his ways, it comes back. And that's the situation that Habakkuk writes to. So I'm going to pick up in chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. We'll see in this that Habakkuk has this progression that he goes through. Initially, he cries out to God and says, God, where are you? What's going on? Why is there no justice in the land? Why? Why? Is your name not revered here? Why are you not doing something? And he begins to wrestle with God. 
And then later on, we'll see that Habakkuk goes to hear from God, and he expects to hear from God, and God speaks to him. And by the end, what we'll see is, is Habakkuk is worshiping God. And I think, I really believe that what we see at the very end of, of his prophecy is one of the greatest declarations of faith that you'll see anywhere in Scripture. So I want us to kind of go through this journey and, and look at this and, and see how that maybe applies to us today um, as, a, as a corporate body, but also individually. What can we glean from this? Habakkuk is saying, God, what's going on? The wicked are prospering. You're not doing anything about it. Why are you not acting? And this word in, in verse 2 where he says, Oh, Lord, how, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. That word cry in Hebrew literally means to roar, to scream. He's saying, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why are you not hearing my cry? Have you ever been in that situation? Have you ever been in the situation where you feel like you're, you're just, you're crying out to God. You're, you're just in, in complete angst with God and you, you don't understand why he is not responding. That's where Habakkuk found himself. He's wondering, when is God going to restore order? When's God going to act? Well, God breaks his silence and he answers Habakkuk. And starting in verse 5, he says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And at that point, it sounds pretty good. And then the other shoe falls. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. He says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans is another, um, an ethnic name for the Babylonians. So the, the Babylonian Empire, the Chaldeans, uh, you'll see them referred to as both, but it's the same in Scripture. So, so Habakkuk says, God, when are you going to restore your name? When are you going to act? And God says, okay, I'm going to act. I'm bringing the Chaldeans to bring justice. I'm bringing them to judge you. And this is, just blows Habakkuk's mind. He can't fathom that God would do something like this. Because I think Habakkuk assumed that somehow the, the rise of the Babylonian Empire, the, all the injustice in his own society that he was seeing was somehow due to, to God kind of taking a step back and God not actively being involved. That God had somehow taken, maybe taken the day off. I don't know, he dropped the ball somehow. That he was not actively involved. He was inactive in this situation, but that's not at all what was happening. Maybe he, he assumed that they were advancing against God's will. But God says, no, that's not the case. He says he's going to use this sinful nation to bring judgment on his own people. Why would God use a sinful nation to judge his own people? I think this really just completely blew Habakkuk's mind. Because he, he knew how evil they were. We're going to see this a little bit more in detail as we walk through this passage. What some of their practices were. They were among the most barbaric in war of any people that has ever existed. In their treatment of prisoners of war. In their treatment of captives. Um, this was a brutal and ruthless people. Why would God use somebody like that to bring judgment on his own people? He was working in a way that, that Habakkuk couldn't understand. And I think sometimes, sometimes that there's an application for us in that too. Sometimes God works in ways that we don't understand, that we don't expect. 
that are completely opposite of how we would do things or how we would expect him to act. And sometimes it throws us for a loop as well, just like it did Habakkuk, that God could do things in a way that, that don't meet our approval, that aren't, that aren't in our way, in our time, in the way that we would do them. And the question becomes, at that point, are we going to trust God? Are we going to have faith, even when we don't understand exactly what he's doing? Or are we going to lose faith when he does something that is contrary to what our will is or to what our expectations are? Hebrews 11, 11, 1 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is when we don't see. It's trusting God. Um, it's easy to trust God when we can see, when we have all the information, when we know exactly what's going on. It's very difficult to trust God when we don't know. And that's the situation that Habakkuk finds himself in. Let me read a little bit more. I'm going to pick it back up in verse 7. This is God describing more about the, the Babylonians. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Basically saying they don't, they don't have any rule of law other than themselves. There's no external authority for them. They do whatever they want to do because they have the power to do it. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. The horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. They sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. They were an incredible military force that brought fear to everybody who they encountered uh, because of they were so vicious, because they had devised new technology in their day to take fortresses where they would pile up earth and they would make towers and they would... Um, basically knock it over where they could climb up and climb into the city. They would lay siege to cities for sometimes a year or two until they starved the people out. Um, they were ruthless and brutal. And so knowing this about them, Habakkuk again says, God, why? Verse 12 is his, his, his second response to God. Are you not from everlasting O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent while the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He's saying at this point, God, I know we're messed up. We're sinful. I get it. But these people, I mean, of all people, why them? They're a whole lot worse than we are. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and it's glad. One of the things that the Babylonians did when they came in and took people captive, they would throw nets around them and cinch them all together. But also often they would take these huge fish hooks and either stick them through the mouths or the nose of their captives and lead them out that way. Can you imagine I mean, just absolute, the people that they didn't kill, that's what they did to them. Um, they were incredibly brutal. Therefore, he sacrifices to his nets and makes offering to his dragnets or to idols, to things that are not God. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? 
Habakkuk says, is, is this just the way that it's going to be? Are you just going to let them keep going and going and going and expanding until there's no more territory for them to have? Are you going to let them completely overrun us, this evil people who doesn't acknowledge you, who doesn't care about you, whose only God is himself? Why would you do that, God? I think, too, Habakkuk probably remembered the prophecy from Isaiah. Isaiah was uh, maybe 60, 70 years before Habakkuk. Um, And Isaiah had a lot to say about, um, or God had a lot to say to Isaiah and through Isaiah about his namesake and his reputation. One of the things that we read in Isaiah 48, God speaking, and he says, For my sake, for my sake I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And I think Habakkuk realized God's about the, the glory of his name. He's about his namesake. He's not about making these kingdoms and these people who don't acknowledge him great. So why would he allow these people to judge Judah when they're going to give all the credit not to God, but to their own military might, to these own false gods that they worship? He's asking God, how are you glorified in this action? I think he's asking a logical question. I think I would very honestly probably ask some of those same questions in his situation. God, why are you doing this? How does this bring glory to your name? How does this make you look good? I don't understand. I'll say I think at this point Habakkuk is is a good example for us. God is not condemning him in this passage or even later for for uh, for sin and, and asking the question. And I think you know just as a as an observation, God is not too big for us to ask questions of. Um, our finite minds can't comprehend him, but just because we can't comprehend him doesn't mean we can't ask questions and seek to know the truth as long as we are doing so with, with a heart to know, with a heart to, to really seek what he's doing, not, not accusing him, but saying, God, show me. Why is this happening? So I don't know, maybe, you've, maybe you have been in that kind of place that Habakkuk was in. Maybe not to the extreme of that, the national situation, but maybe there's been a situation in your life where you or you're in it now, where you say, God, I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand why the situation that's in my life is happening. What are you doing? I can't square it with what I see as your revealed nature in Scripture. Why would you allow this to happen? I want to encourage you, as Habakkuk wrestled, to wrestle with God on these issues, to question, to cry out to him, to seek an answer from him, and to expect an answer from him. And we're going to see in just a minute that Habakkuk did that. He sought an answer from God, and God gave him one. Um, actually, let me pick up in, in chapter 2, verse 1. Habakkuk has just questioned God again why he would do this, and he says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So what Habakkuk is basically saying is, I'm going to get up on the wall of the city, I'm going to get away from the hustle and bustle of the city. I'm going to look out. I'm going to get a vantage point. I'm going to pray. I'm going to seek God's face. And I'm not coming down until he answers me. There is an expectation here that he's going to hear from God. And there's a determination that he's saying, I'm going to stay up here until God gives me an answer, until I can figure out what's going on, until God explains this in a way that, that my faith can get it. Um, I think, honestly, that determination is refreshing and I think that's something for us to emulate as well. I don't know about you, but I think often it's easy for when there's a 
a, an issue for us to pray for five minutes and then flip on Sports Center or jump on Facebook or go to the mall or call a friend or whatever. Why is that? Why do we not seek God intently with determination? Say, God, I'm not going to stop asking until you give me an answer. I need an answer from you. I need to know. Um, I, I think, you know, he, he also, there's an expectation that, that God is going gonna, is gonna to respond to him. Um, I don't know, maybe sometimes we don't always expect that God will speak to us. But he does speak to us. He speaks to us primarily through the word. And that's where we hear most of the time where he's going to speak back to us. But he speaks to us in prayer as well. And so the, the obligation for us is to seek him. Um, when we don't understand, we don't know what's going on, to seek him. And, and to be ready for instruction, to be ready for correction. Um, Habakkuk says, I will wait what he has to say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. He's expecting God to, re- to respond to him and to correct him. And he's saying, okay, God, tell me. So God responds, uh, starting in verse 2. He says, the Lord answered me, write this vision, make it plain on tablets, so he who runs may read it. Basically, he's saying, this is really important. Make a billboard out of it. Make it huge so everybody that sees it is going to be able to easily read it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God is saying, my word's going to come to pass. The things that the the things that I'm telling you, they're sure they're going to happen, but it's maybe not going to happen on your time frame. The timing that you expect to happen is not necessarily my timing. The things that you want done your way are not necessarily my ways. So you need to be patient. You need to be willing to wait. You need to have faith and trust that I'm going to bring things about in my time to do things my way. I think that's a place where many of us find difficulty, waiting on God's timing for things. We definitely live in an age of instant gratification, and we want what we want now. And I think that that spills over into our faith a lot of times. We say, God, I've been asking for a spouse. Why have you not, why have you not brought me a spouse? God, I've been asking for you to save my dad, to bring him to salvation. Why have you not done that? God, this month, and last month and the next month, I've got more month than I have money. What are you going to do about that? How are you going to make my ends meet? Well, God promises us all throughout Scripture that he will take care of us. Um, Jesus, Jesus tells us that if he cares about the sparrows, he will surely care about us. If he clothes the, the, the flowers and the grass of the field, he will surely clothe us. Um, there are so many promises throughout Scripture of his care for us and of his of his sustenance for us, but also, just as Habakkuk finds out here, that timing of, of, of how that's going to be provided is not always on our timing. It's not always when we want it or when we expect it to be. But his promises are certain, and God says it is going to happen. You just may have to wait a little bit on it. So he's telling him, I'm going to give you this vision, but he hasn't yet quite told him what it is. Um, but there's a couple of clues of what God has already said as to kind of what that concerns. And if you flip back to, to chapter 1, 
where he says in verse 5, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. He's saying, I'm about to do something that you wouldn't even believe it if I told you. And then he talks about the, the Babylonians. And then in verse 11, he says, uh, he describes the Babylonians as guilty men whose own might is their God. God has declared them to be guilty before him. And so ultimately what we're going to see is that part of God's um, revelation to Habakkuk is that he is going to judge the Babylonians ultimately. Um, that he is going to make things right. That he is going to set things right. But he's going to do it in his own timing and not necessarily how and when Habakkuk expects it to happen. But he's going to use all of that um, to bring awe and wonder among his people. Well, if you flip over to, to chapter 2 again, um, starting in verse 6, there are five woes that God pronounces on the people of Babylon. Um, when he pronounces woes, basically he says, here's something that you're doing that is evil. And so there's a pronouncement of what they've done, and then there's a pronouncement of, here's what I'm going to do in response to that. And it's, it's basically his judgment on them. So if you look at, starting in verse 6, it says, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those who awake will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you, for the blood of the man of violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. The woe is basically, you've had greed. You have not only had greed, but you've gone out and plundered from other people. You've taken what does not belong to you. You've made people suffer because of that. And because of that, Babylonians, you yourselves will be plundered. In verse 8 is what he talks about. All the remnants of the people will plunder you. Um, the second woe starts in verse 9, 9 through 11. He says, Woe to him who, who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe for the reach of harm. He says, Woe to you who have, who have been guilty of evil gain, and you've made security out of yourself out of what you think you can get. You've taken evilly from other people, and you've tried to set up your own security. But he says, ultimately, you've devised shame for your house. You've cut off many people. You have forfeited your life. Ultimately, the price you're going to pay for that is your own life, Babylon. Um, verse 12 and 13 is another woe that deals with violence. He says, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. He says, you're building this town with, based on gore and violence. But ultimately, it's going to amount to nothing. Verse uh, 15 is a, the fourth woe. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of the man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. He basically says, you have dealt in deceit and sexual immorality and you have shamed other people, and I will do the same to you. Um, the last one deals with idolatry. Um, starting in verse 18, he says, what profit is an idol 
when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in its own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. The woe that he says is idolatry. Is this on? Okay, y'all can hear me? Okay. So he says, the woe is idolatry. And because of that, God will judge them um, because of their idolatry. But there's a couple other things that are show up in these woes other than just the, the announcement of their sin and God's punishment. Um, look at verse 14. This is after he talks about them founding their city on iniquity and building up this city for their own glory. And he says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There's a thread of redemptive history that runs through this. God is saying, What these people think they're going to do for their own glory, in their own timing, in their own way, in spite of who I am and what I've done, I'm still going to accomplish my purposes. Just as he had spoken all the way back uh, to, to Abraham, that he would make his name great and that he would use him to bless all peoples on the earth. Now he says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Verse 20, after he talks about their idolatry, he contrasts that with the Lord himself. And he says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. He says that only God is truly God and only he is worthy of praise. So he he pronounces these woes against the nation of Babylon and really against anyone who sets them their, their faith and their, their system of belief up around the fact that they're going to do it their way. They're going to disregard God. They're going to do whatever they want. They're not going to, to walk in faith with God. Um, now, I want to jump back to chapter 2, verse 4. I skipped over this earlier, but I think this is really the centerpiece of this whole book, and this is really the key of this whole book. Um, and we're going to kind of mine out the implications of this in a little bit more detail. God at this point contrasts one who, um, who is wrapped up in his own desires and his own self, who, who walks only by sight without faith in God, but only what he can do and what he can see, what he can make with his own hands, versus one who walks by faith in God. He says, behold, he is puffed up. It is not upright within him. His, his heart is not upright within him. He's He's talking about Babylon and individuals here who don't walk by faith. But the righteous shall live by his faith. That little phrase is easy to overlook in this book. But it is, I think, the linchpin of this whole book. And it's something that gets picked up by Paul in the New Testament. And he talks about um, this phrase in Romans and in Galatians. And the author of Hebrews picks it up in And talks about it as well. And so I want us to look at some of those passages. um, Because there's a contrast here between one who walks by sight and what he can do, what he can make, what he can bring about on his own, and one who walks by faith in God. One who waits on God's timing, one who waits on God's purposes, one who trusts that God is good. 
who trusts his character even when they can't see exactly what he's up to. Um, and there's a there's a huge contrast here. And I think Babylon was the perfect example of that, of the, the negative there, because they were a people that had this incredible military machine. They had conquered so many people. They had just overrun so many people. They had this great confidence that they were going to be able to just keep going and going and going. And they were basically pre- prepared to force all other people to honor them and to honor their gods. And they were pretty sure that they were building this lasting empire. But their empire didn't last. It only lasted about another 70 years, and they were done. Um, it was pretty brief. Daniel talks about this in Daniel's chapter 4 and 5. God lays low the emperor of Babylon. In and, and Daniel 4.30, King Nebuchadnezzar is contemplating his greatness one night and talking about it, and he says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? You know what God does? Anybody remember the story? He makes Nebuchadnezzar go crazy. He makes him eat grass for seven years to acknowledge that God is the one who installs kings, the one who takes kings off of power. Um, He humbles him significantly in that. Um, In fact, Daniel tells him, that he will, he will continue to do that until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. But God does this again with his son, um, the last emperor of Babylon, Belshazzar. He holds this great feast for thousands of people, and he invites all these people in, throws this lavish banquet. And God tells him that he's been weighed in the scales and found wanting. And there's a writing on the wall that is his doom. Um, This is God speaking to Belshazzar through Daniel. He says, And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the God of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. And that night, he loses his life. The empire is taken from him. And that's the downfall of the empire. Um, that's not the last that we see of Babylon in Scripture. We've been studying through Revelation. If you remember the last few weeks, we've been looking at Revelation 17, 18, 19, and you see this reference to Babylon. Um, it comes back up as a metaphor later in Scripture and how Babylon is... is portrayed as um, a prostitute who is leading away the faithful from God. It's a picture of the entire world system that is opposed to God, that is taking those away from him and giving glory to others, Um, particularly in chapter 17 and 18 where where Babylon's destruction is prophesied. So, again, in chapter 2-4, this one who he describes, his soul is puffed up, is referring to someone who is walking by sight, who is walking by faith only in what they can do and what they can make happen, not in God, not in his character, not in his nature, not waiting on his timing, not humbling themselves to him, but saying, I'm going to make it my way, I'm going to do whatever I want, and you can't stop me. And he contrasts this with the one who is righteous, who shall live by faith. So the question, I guess, for us is, 
It's easy to speak with our mouths that we believe God, that we trust him, that we follow him. But what do our lives say? Do they say that we are walking in faith or do they say that we're only walking inside of what we can see around us? Did our lives say that we trust God implicitly even when we don't understand exactly what he's up to? Or do they say that we're seeking to make a way of escape for ourselves without really considering his nature, his promises, what he's done for us in Christ? It's, it's a big question. Um, I told you I, I think this is kind of the centerpiece of the book here in Habakkuk 2.4. And I want us to look briefly at how this is played out in the New Testament. So hold your finger there and flip with me over to Romans 1. And we're going to do kind of a very quick survey through these three passages um, where this passage is quoted in the New Testament. That the righteous shall live by their faith. And to, to kind of help you try to remember this, this is the way that I think the emphasis goes on this. In Romans, it is the righteous shall live by their faith. In Galatians, we'll see it's the righteous shall live by faith. Faith is the emphasis. Um, and in Hebrews, the emphasis is on living. The righteous shall live by faith. So let's look at this. Let's kind of walk through this and see what we, what we see. Um, in Romans, the question is, how are we saved? I'm going to pick up in Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written in Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. So he describes this reality of what that the righteous shall live by faith. And then he, he basically takes the next few chapters to delineate what that means. Um, and he's talking about issues of salvation, how we are justified before God. So starting in verse 18, he, he, says, he tells us that God's wrath is on unrighteousness. Um, he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Um, and basically, he goes through and makes the case that all of us are guilty before God because we have a knowledge of God, because God has made himself known. Um, but we have ignored that. We've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Um, so he goes on in chapter 2 and says, because of that, because we, God has made himself known and, and we have ignored that, um, God is, is righteous in his judgment. Um, 2, 1 through 11 talks about that, uh, that God's judgment is righteous on sin. Um, starting in verse 12 of chapter 2, he talks about that only, only those that keep the law can be righteous. And there's a problem there for us because none of us keep the law. Um, all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. It is not the hearer of the law who are righteous before God, but the doer of the law who are justified. He goes on to talk about that if we have, if we have missed one part of the law, we've missed all of it. Um, and then in chapter 3, he begins talking about God's righteousness and the fact that if God judges, he is still righteous. Um, verse 5, he says, If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? By no means. 
It says God is righteous when he, when he judges sin. Um, over to verse 9, 9 through 20, he, again, he, he says that none of us are righteous, that all of us have turned away. There's no one righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned away. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There's a lot of, a lot of bad news up front there in this. But there is good news. Um, starting in 321, he says that the righteousness that we have is when God declares us righteous. He gives us the gift of faith to believe. And it's not a righteousness that we can earn. It's not a righteousness that we can make happen ourselves. But God imputes it to us. He says the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, made right, declared right, by his grace as a gift of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God declares us right, and he is still righteous to judge sin. Um, And then he goes on to talk about that because of that, we don't have any room to boast. We don't have any room to brag about who we are, what we've done, because it is God who makes us right. He says, our righteousness is completely a gift from God. He says, the righteous... The ones who've been declared right will live by faith. This passage, I don't know if you if you guys know your your uh, Protestant history, but this passage in Romans one was the birth of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther struggled his most of his uh, early adult life with understanding how do how am I made righteous before God, and he really he had become a monk. Um, and he began to seek to know God. He, he, would, he would do these incredibly harsh things to his body, like sleep outside in the freezing cold with no blanket and beat himself and climb upstairs on his knees to try to appease God. And he, he really felt like God hated him um, because he knew that he was not right. He read Romans, and he knew that, that it said the righteous live by faith, and he knew that he was not righteous himself. And it was in God opening his eyes to this passage eventually that led him to understand that righteousness is a gift of grace by God. It's not something that we can earn. It's not something we can make happen. And that reality sparked the Protestant Reformation. That reality led you to where you're sitting here today. Um, This is a a powerful truth. I may not be doing it justice trying to expound it for you, but, y'all, this is something to know, to to dive into, and to wrestle with and enjoy. Uh, This is good news. Our righteousness does not depend on what we do. Our righteousness is given to us as a gift of grace from God. Um, Paul picks this up in Galatians 3 as well. And flip over there, and we'll kind of walk through this briefly. And I'm running out of time, so I'll try to be quick. Galatians 3, the righteous shall live by faith. The question here is how are we sanctified? Once he saves us, what is this process that we deal with of becoming more like Jesus? Um, I'm going to pick up in Galatians 3, chapter 2. 
verse 11, and just kind of give you a summary here. Um, Paul says that he opposed Peter when he came to Antioch because Peter believed that the gospel was through faith, but then he got around um, people who were Jewish in their background and began to act like, well, you, now you've got to keep the law. And then when the Gentiles came into the picture, he was wanting them to, to keep the law too, um, to try to try to keep up appearances. And Paul says he, he opposed him to his faith because of his hypocrisy. Um, and he says, in, starting in verse 15, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified, not made right with God, by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be saved. Um, he says that's not the way that it happens. You can't, you can't work your way into heaven. And then he goes on um, in, verse, in chapter 3 to say, guys, you started with the Spirit. You started with this right understanding. And now you've fallen back into this workspace righteousness. It says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. In verse 3 he says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? He's saying, you, you got it right at your salvation. But now you're falling back into this, this mindset that, you can do something that's going to that's going to keep you in a right standing with God. He says, "No, the, the righteous live by faith. They don't live by the law. You don't shackle yourself back to law once you've been set free. You live by faith." Um, the, the whole implication of this is is huge. So, uh, starting in verse ten, then he says, "For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them.'" Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Don't begin by faith. And go back to this workspace righteousness. Live by faith. Um, don't become a legalist. Don't, don't become a Christian and then now all of a sudden you've got a list of 48 things that you have to do to be right with God. And then impose that on other people as well. We're to be holy or to live by faith. So I guess the question that I would have for us this morning is, are we living by faith in the work of Jesus for our righteousness? Or have we somehow devise some system that we have to check off in order to be right with God, and that makes us feel good. Because that's not the issue here. The issue is he has declared us righteous. Now we need to walk in that, walk in that by faith, walk with him on a daily basis. It's not an external system. It is a daily abiding with him where he changes our hearts, he changes our desires to know him and to love him. Um, Let's look at Hebrews real quickly. Hebrews chapter 10. I really think the emphasis here is the righteous shall live by faith. The question is, how do we persevere in the faith? Because Hebrews is written to a persecuted church who is dealing with not only 
having their stuff taken, having their friends and family thrown in jail, having some of them killed, the church being scattered and persecuted. Um, And the question is, how do we live in the midst of that? And so I'm going to pick up um, Hebrews 10, verse, uh, let's see, somewhere around 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What Jesus has accomplished is faithful. What he has done on our behalf is, is a finished work. We can have confidence in that. Let's draw near to God because of that. Um, he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as, the, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So as you're persecuted, as you have difficulty, draw near to God. And, and by the way, don't just become Lone Ranger Christians. Don't isolate yourself from the body because you need to be encouraged by other people. As you experience difficulty and as they experience difficulty, you need to have community that encourages you to walk with God. He talks about if they go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, that the, the, the sacrifice of, of, for sin is not, um, no longer valid for them. It's a, there's a whole lot to mine out there, but we're not going to get into that right now. Um, but then in verse, verse 38, again, he comes back and quotes this passage. Um, from Habakkuk and he says yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay but my righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back my soul has no pleasure in him but we are not of the ones who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and, and preserve their souls and then he launches into chapter 11 this whole recounting of people who have lived by faith even when they didn't see what God was up to even when they didn't understand even in the midst of difficulty and he goes through list of all these people um, from Abel, um, from, from the beginning, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah. Um, verse 13, he says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. These people didn't see ultimately what God had, had told them was going to happen on earth, but they did see it in his presence. He goes on and describes so many more um, that have basically recounts redemptive history through the nation of Israel. Um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Esau, Moses, uh, the people crossing the Red Sea, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. He goes on and names all these others, and then all these unknown people that have not been recorded in Scripture. Uh, And then in verse 39, he says, all these though commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Again, he's saying they didn't receive in this life what they were looking for, but they did receive it ultimately. And because of this, we pick up in verse twelve in chapter 12, I think a passage that is very familiar to most, most in the church. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, since we have seen these examples of people that lived by faith, that were willing to trust God even when they didn't 
see what he was up to, even when they didn't completely understand what he was up to. They were living by faith and not by sight. Because of that, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which, and which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. In light of all this, let's persevere. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's run the race. Let's have faith. Let's live and walk with faith. There's a security there um, when we can trust in God, when we can walk with him and, and realize that we don't have to have all the answers. There's also a security that realizes that because of that, because his work for us is secure, we're able to risk. We're able to risk temporal things because our eternal destiny is secure. Um, that, that has been pretty much the story for us as, as a church. Why we work where we work is because we understand that ultimately our salvation is secure, that God has called his people to go to the ends of the earth, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth so that his name will be made great, so that people will receive salvation and will praise him. And we can be secure in going because come what may, we know that our faith is secure. We know he is going to do what he's promised. Um, and, and we can rest in that. So we, one of the things we value here is risk in the name of Christ because ultimately our risk is a temporal risk. It's not an eternal risk. That's already been settled and taken care of for us. Um, the question I guess I would have for us this morning in light of this passage is, are we living daily by faith? Even when the promised reward is not visible, does our faith rest on God's promises or does it rest on just what we can see? Ralph Winter writes this, that you can't be any kind of solid Christian if you're unwilling to do anything God asks. You don't lose if you go with God, but you have to be willing to lose or you can't stick close to God. So we realize that our security is not in our assets financially. It's not in our family. It's not in how um, smart we are. It's not uh, in your rugged charm your good looks, your anything else that you've got. It is in God. It is in what you can do um, in him. Not, not what you can do, but what he can do in you and through you. It's not in our, our self-assurance. All right, I'm going to wrap this up really quickly. I know I'm going long. I apologize. Um, back to Habakkuk chapter 3. I want to I finish this up. Habakkuk responds to God after God gives these woes. And he, re, he comes to a point of being able to respond in worship after understanding what God is doing and what God is going to do. Um, so three one it says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. And I don't know exactly what that means. I've read some different commentaries. Different people have different opinions. Some people say that means it's a, it's a musical instrument. Some people say it's a kind of psalm. The kind of song, because this is a song, ultimately, if you look at the end of the, the book. Um, I guess if it's a musical instrument, Kelly Lane can figure out how to play it, because he can play anything else. It's strings, okay? Very good. We'll, uh, maybe we'll have some shigging off next month. Uh, y'all get to work on that. <laughs> but regardless, he comes to God and responds in singing. He, uh, he comes to God to be able to respond out of joy, even in the midst of, what he knows is coming is going to be really, really hard for the nation and for himself 
um, particularly. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And then he begins recounting again this salvation history. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. And he basically goes through recounting the peoples, um, God taking care of them through the Exodus, through all of Israel's history up to then. And I'm not going to read all of that this morning, um, but I think that you know, there's a confidence here that he has in God because of what God has done, because God now has spoken to him, has reassured him, and he's able to look back and say, oh, yeah, I remember, God has been faithful. God will be faithful. Um, there is a passage I think is interesting here. We talked, as Mitch has, has been preaching through um, Revelation, and last week he, he looked at God ultimately coming back to judge those that, um, that were opposed to him. And, and we looked at this passage um, out of, was it Isaiah 53, 63? 63, um, where he comes on the, on the horse and is judging those. And, you know, Mitch's comment was, yeah, you go. <laughs> I'm going to stand in the background and watch you do your thing. Um, verses 12 to 15 is kind of that same thing where God is promising that he's going to set things right. He says, you marched to the earth in fury. You thrust the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from neck to thigh. You pierced with his own heirs the head of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. There's, there's this, this uh, very confidence that he has that God is going to set things right because God has, has shown himself um, has declared to him that he is going to ultimately, in his timing, set things right, and that Habakkuk's response to that needs to be to trust and have faith. Um, remember I told you that Habakkuk wrote in a time of, of calamity, and he wrote essentially about 20 years before Judah was completely destroyed. Um, you can read about it in Lamentations 2, um, a particularly horrific siege that they put on the nation, on the city. They came and surrounded the city of Jerusalem for almost two years and basically starved the people out. Lamentations 2 describes how they ran out of food, how the people resorted even to cannibalism, um, just some awful, horrific things, and then how eventually the army, the army decided they were going to make a mad dash for it, and when they left to left the walls to, uh, to make a mad dash for it. They were basically just caught up and the army was slaughtered and the people were taken off. Um, so I think Habakkuk kind of had this in mind. He knew that there was severe judgment coming for his people. So I don't want to minimize the pain that he went through or the pain that maybe some of us are going through or will go through. But I also want to remind us that God is just, that he is righteous, and that his purposes are for his glory and for our good, and that he is going to accomplish them in his time. Um, the end of this book, even in the light of all that, Habakkuk comes back to praise God. And I want you to listen to this, um, 3, 17 through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no more food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. 
God, the Lord is my strength, for he makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. This is an incredible declaration of faith. Saying, God, even if there's no food, even if there's no means to provide food, even if you cut off completely our, our means of, of food, of sustenance, of wealth, even in the midst of that, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Even if I lose everything, I will yet praise Him. Um, this, this passage, verse 19, where he says, He makes my feet like the deer's. Think North America. Think mountain goat. Um, mountain goats, I don't know if any of y'all have ever seen them in person. Jenny and I got to see some when we were hiking in Colorado on our honeymoon. Um, these things have gnarly feet. And... They climb up to high places, places that you and I can't get to without ropes. Um, and, and the reason is not because they're super strong. The reason is because that's the way God designed them. The reason is because God allowed them to go up to the high places. He designed them for that. And Habakkuk here is not saying, hey, I'm going to some high place. I'm going rock climbing because it's cool to go rock climbing. Because people back then, they didn't go rock climbing. They didn't go up to high places because they wanted to. And they went up to high places only when they had to, to, to run away from somebody or to get a military advantage over someone. But what he's saying essentially here is, even if you make me go through difficulty, I know that you're going to be with me. I know you're going to provide my needs. I know that you will enable me to go to difficult places, to go through difficult things, and that you will be with me. And I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk was able to trust God because ultimately he saw his character and ultimately he was willing to walk by faith and not just by sight. So I want to encourage us to do the same this morning. I don't, I don't know where everybody is in their life right now. I don't know. Some of you, life may be better than it has ever been this morning. Some of you, life may be worse than it has ever been. Some of you, tomorrow, life may get difficult. But I want to encourage you to be able to walk by faith um, to, to remember this truth from Habakkuk, that the righteous live by faith. And to trust God, even when you don't see exactly what he's up to, even when you don't see exactly where he's leading you, to trust his character, his nature, what he has done for us in Christ, and be able to depend on that and walk with him through that. Let's pray, and then we're going to respond to God in song. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for just the brutal honesty of it. That when we go through difficulty, we can see examples of that in Scripture. That we're not the first for that to happen to. We can know that you're faithful to your people. That you're faithful to your own name, to your cause. You will not give your glory to another. That you care about your people. God, I pray that you would inspire trust in us in a way that would cause us to walk by faith with you. That would cause us to be willing to say, come what may, we will follow you in faith. God, I pray that as we sing, that um, as we wrestle with that, you would grow our faith. And as we sing, that you would cause our hearts to respond by faith to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.